Welcome back to the program. During the recent Ebola scare, we were often reminded of the dozens of science thrillers that set the stage for our fear. From the Andromeda strain to Outbreak, The Stand, and World War Z, to name just a few. Today, the cutting edge of genetic manipulation often provides the basis for our fears. The brave new world of bioengineering plays upon our most primal instincts of what makes us human. My guest, Jamie Metzell, a former member of the National Security Council, has added his new thriller to this long tradition. Set against the worlds of politics, finance, and religion, Genesis Code takes its place in fueling our paranoia. Jamie Metzell is a principal in a global investment company and a senior fellow of the Asia Society. He served in the U.S. National Security Council, State Department, and Senate Foreign Relations Committee. It is my pleasure to welcome him here to talk about Genesis Code, a thriller of the near future. Jamie, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Jeff. I'm thrilled to be with you. Great to have you here. You're a, a policy guy. You've written a book about the Cambodian genocide. Why, yep. why a thriller about this? Well, I, you're right. And I've served, on, as you mentioned, served on the National Security Council and the State Department and elsewhere. And I'm, re- I'm incredibly passionate about these big ideas and the big challenges that not only we in the United States, but we in the world are facing. Uh, and certainly the the coming revolution, and it's fa- frankly, it's a revolution that's already here in genetic manipulation, is one of those big challenges. And it's, it's a great opportunity, and it's a great challenge, and the opportunity and the challenge are woven together. Uh, but just as a bit of background, I was working on the National Security Council in the Clinton administration, and my boss then uh, was a guy named Richard Clark, who at that time was saying, he told me that if there, is a, if there is an issue that everybody in Washington is focusing on, you can be sure that there's something 10 times more important that they're not focusing on. And for him at that time, the two big issues were terrorism and cybercrime. And we all know what happened there, what happened after that. And so I, w- I was thinking for a, a long time, what are those big issues that we're missing? And so 10 years ago, I just started, became obsessed with these issues of, of genetics and, and biotechnology started reading everything I could, and then I started writing policy articles. And a uh, congressman actually from California, Brad Sherman, gave me a call and said, I read your article on the national security implications of the genetics revolution and want to do a hearing on it. So I went there and testified uh, and then um, started working on a, uh, a book proposal uh, with, with an agent who'd contacted me writing a nonfiction book on, on the same topic, the national security implications of the genetics revolution. But the more I wrote it, the more I realized that it's not just a policy issue. This, it, these issues of genetics touch uh, the very essence of our humanity. And what I had written one novel before, and what I really wanted to do was to write a story um, that brings in science and policy and other things, but a story about what's it going to be like when the first genetically enhanced people start showing up and how is that going to disrupt us and how, what are going to be the political implications but also the, and the national security implications and also the personal and, and existential implications for, for us as, as humans. And that long process eventually led to, to my writing of Genesis Code. And, of course, one of the things that is part of this whole discussion is the paranoia, the fear that seeps into this conversation. We haven't yet come to grips with genetic engineering in terms of food, much less beginning to accept it as far as human beings are concerned. 
Yeah, there's an enormous amount of, uh, of paranoia. In your introduction, Jeff, you mentioned Ebola. And I think Ebola is a good example of what we want not to happen. Because 20 years ago, many of us read the incredible book, Hot Zone, about Ebola. But then Ebola kind of receded. It was there. Nobody paid much attention to it. And then the Ebola crisis um, broke out in West Africa. And then it was uh, one of these stories of too bad for them, but it's far away, and we, we didn't really respond. We didn't send serious resources to help. And then three cases of Ebola show up in, in the United States. Not really a threat to us in, in any sig uh, significant way, but all of a sudden, everybody freaks out. And rather than having the meaningful conversation about, well, what can we do to help the people who are really suffering from Ebola in West Africa, we have this kind of insane navel-gazing conversation like we've had here in, in, in the United States. And if that's what's happening with Ebola on genetic, and, and then let's you mention GMOs. I mean, I know you're in Napa, um, but in 30 years, and there's a lot of strong views on, on GMOs, not just in California, but around the country and around the world. Um, but in 30, and I, in 30 years of research on genetically modified crops, there's really no serious evidence that they're any worse for you than conventional crops, which quite honestly, even that most of our conventional crops are genetically modified. It's just been a slow process that's over the last 10,000 years, but very active uh, process. And so if we can't have real honest conversations about genetically, modif genetically modified crops or Ebola, it's going to be a hundred times harder to have those conversations about what I think will eventually become genetically modified humans. And one of the reasons why I've written the book and I've written articles in foreign affairs and, and other places about this is I think we need to be having a much deeper conversation about those issues now. What prevents us from doing that in large measure, though, is one of the things that you get to in Genesis Code is that any conversation today about science takes on cultural issues, political issues, picks up so much weight along the way that it's impossible to focus just on the science. Uh, it, that, is, it, that is absolutely true, um, but it gets harder and harder as the science progresses. I mean, one of the challenges that we face is in these areas of biotechnology and genetics, the science is advancing exponentially. Our imagination is only expanding linear linearly, and the policy and regulatory environment is only inching forward glacially. So there's a huge mismatch uh, between how fast the science is racing ahead and just what we are able to absorb, and certainly to the, the level and depth of the conversations that we're having. And those are conversations that we're going to have to have within our societies and within our countries, but also internationally, because as, as I mentioned in the book, if it doesn't matter if the United States, as we did under George Bush, says we're just going to cut off stem cell research. It doesn't slow stem cell research. It just means that your amazing professors from Stanford and elsewhere just go to places like Singapore or England. And, and so the science is going to advance. Uh, human, our species will be, we're already genetically manipulated through gene therapies. Um, we're right on the verge of starting with, um, starting mitochondrial transfer, which will be three parent uh, babies. And we will we will genetically we'll, uh, manipulate ourselves in the future. We will uh, engage, <clears throat> excuse me, in active embryo selection uh, in the future. And, and these will do wonderful things. We're going to eliminate genetic diseases that have tortured us for hundreds of thousands of, of years, but we'll also open the door 
to these Promethean capabilities um, that we will need to manage in a thoughtful way. It's interesting when you look at something like in vitro fertilization, and when that came along, there was pushback to it, there was concern, there was paranoia, but nothing on the level of what we're seeing today. Before, well, right now, I think there's a lot more comfort for uh, with the IVF process right. uh, than in the beginning. And I think that's actually, I would say it's the opposite lesson. That we when when Louise Brown was born, mm-hmm. people thought, well, this is crazy. This is you know, who could do this? This is unnatural. And now people are pretty comfortable with IVF. I mean, California once again with Facebook and Apple are taking the lead uh, in egg freezing. And so, if you're doing egg freezing, that means you're going to be doing um, IVF. Uh, and I think, frankly, one of the reasons why my book was featured in Cosmopolitan magazine in November is I believe that all of these technologies will ultimately, and whether that means in 20 years or 50 years, I don't know, uh, but will ultimately lead to the end of sex as a mechanism for procreation. We'll still have sex for all the other wonderful wonderful reasons that we do, um, but advantaged people all around the world won't conceive of their children in the process of sex because it will then be seen as something unnecessarily dangerous. But that point you're making is is exactly the point, that IVF is something that we've come to accept rather quickly. I would argue yeah. that if IVF came along today, it wouldn't go along the same glide path, that all those other paranoia and, and political and cultural issues would prevent it from taking the path that it did. The positive yeah, path I, that it did. Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, the reason why um, IVF people have liked IVF is it allows us to do something that we as humans really want to do. We want to have children. And when there are people who are blocked from having uh, children, they have this wonderful new technology that in many cases allows them to do so, they're going to do it. And just with, with embryo selection. Uh, right now, California has a, has a more uh, permissive uh, regulatory environment for uh, things like surrogacy and um, pre-implantation genetic uh, diagnosis. And there's a reason for that is that, that people who are, whether they're Ashkenazi Jews who are, are carriers for Tay-Sachs or, or people who are concerned about Down syndrome or various other things, that there's a reason why people will want to test those embryos and make and make selections, and I think that will guide uh, adoption. But at the same time, every one of these technologies will trigger fears among people, and whether it's eugenics or Franken science, uh, like we've had with the the GMO debate, or or many other things. And that's that's why uh, we need to have a debate now that concentrates on that that allows us to ask the question what are the beneficial uses of this these technologies and what are the red lines what are the lines that we don't want to cross for things that we're just fundamentally as a society not comfortable with but we need to accept the different societies will come to to different conclusions in that conversation one of the other things we fear and that often sparks paranoia you've incorporated into the genesis code as, as well and that is the rise of the continual rise of china Yes. Talk a little bit yeah. about that. Yeah. So, um, so I mean, let's let we'll go back ten thousand years. For much of of our history, since the end of the Ice Age, the the West, including the Middle East, has been more advanced uh, than China. Around around uh, the sixth century or so, China surged ahead, and for that thousand years. 
uh, from the 6th century to about the 16th century, China was probably the most advanced civilization in the world. But for the last 500 years of our experience, the, the pendulum has, has swung uh, towards the West, Europe, and, and certainly uh, more recently uh, the United States. Uh, but now that's shifting again, and, and China is growing and, in an incredible way, and, and, and the Chinese people deserve an enormous amount of credit for everything that they've done. Their, their rate of economic growth uh, since the late uh, uh, 1970s has been the fastest of, of any society in, in history. And so China has earned a seat at the international table. They've certainly done wonders to improve the living conditions of people inside of China. Uh, but there's a real danger that as China rises, so far uh, it is not um, playing along with the international rules and the international system that the United States and others helped establish at, at the end of the Second World War. And this is the first time we've had countries that have risen economically uh, over the last 70 years, including uh, Japan and, and Germany and Korea and others. But they have all grown within the, the framework of the U.S. Um, security umbrella and, and the U.S. international system. And there's a real question now as China rises um, whether China's goal is to challenge that system um, or to integrate uh, into it. And, and there, are, there are signs of both. And certainly in the South China Sea and the East China Sea, uh, China is being extremely aggressive, uh, aggressive and challenging many of the, of the norms, at least, of the international system, certainly on issues like uh, cyber theft uh, and in the, the, um, uh, the Arctic race and other areas. China is, 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 is demonstrating behaviors that are frightening uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of people. Um, on the other hand, to live in a secure and peaceful world um, with China as soon to be the largest economy in the world, we're going to need to find ways to meaningfully uh, coexist, which will mean that we're going to have to adapt to them somewhat and they're going to have to adapt to us somewhat. One of the things that, of course, and you alluded to this at the beginning, that you can do in, in fiction is really address some of these issues in ways that might have been more difficult or might have been tougher to get people to understand in the context of writing a nonfiction book about right. these topics. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, my goal and the reason why I write is I want to I want to spark people's minds. I want to get people talking about things. And so certainly I've done a lot of writing. I have a, a an internationally syndicated column and I've written for foreign affairs and and other uh, journals. But you you reach people who it's a very it's a smaller subset of people of the much of the group of people who need to be having these conversations, and ultimately we are humans. Uh, it's our tradition that we learn through stories, uh, and so for me writing this this book was trying to create a story that would feel familiar to people. That's why I I placed the book is set in 2023 in Kansas City, and I tried to build a world that feels familiar, just feels like a logical outgrowth of the world that, we are, um, uh, that we're in today. Um, it, so that people will say, wow, that, that really does sound familiar. And I haven't invented from whole cloth any technologies that are in the book. I may have extended them uh, a, a little bit. And, I just, and, and as I've traveled around the country uh, and have spoken about the book and I'm get, receiving wonderful feedback from readers, um, all kinds of people who don't read foreign affairs <laughs> Um, uh, who who aren't plugged into these very more narrow policy or scientific dialogues are saying, wow, I never really 
thought of this that way. And, and so that's, that's really my goal. I just want to have a conversation is one. And then secondly, as I mentioned, uh, as I mentioned earlier, these issues are not just science issues. Um, they're mm-hmm. not just uh, policy issues. They're very existential issues for what it means to be a human being for the, you know, for the first time in our history. And whether you think our means 200,000 years as homo sapiens or, four billion years since we were our ancestors were single-celled organisms for the first time in our history we're on the verge of being able to actively control actively manage our evolutionary process and rewrite our genetic code and this is it's such a fundamental transformation uh, for us but it really touches the essence of what what it means to be a, a, a human being and and though these are the kind of big big questions that we're starting to struggle with now but we certainly will struggle with in the future and how do you tamp down the paranoia enough to be able to have that meaningful conversation um it's a balance i mean there are real uh, in this conversation there are real dangers and i think we need to be honest about uh, about what those are i mean when we can rewrite which we can basically do now the genetic code it opens up a pandora's box of horrors um, and we can do we can create you know, biological warfare agents that can be very destructive. Um, we can make uh, beings that are part human, part animal, and we can do all these sorts of, of things. And we should be afraid of some of those things. Uh, and we can do these wonderful things of eliminating genetic diseases that have plagued our us and our ancestors for uh, for millennia. Um, we can uh, we can create crops that can survive um, the challenges of climate change and drought and flooding and salination. Um, we can live longer, healthier, more robust lives. And so there's a lot of positive and there's a lot of danger, but we need to find a balance in that conversation. Talk about some of the other things that you're thinking about that you want to write about, perhaps in the future, that, that touch on some of these realms. Sure. Well, thank you for asking. I have actually already written um, at least the first draft of the sequel to Genesis Code, which is called Eternal Sonata. And that book deals with stem cell treatments um, that reverse the aging process. But um, as a result of, of getting these treatments, you lose all of your memory. So you can become 20 years, uh, biologically 20 years younger, but your brain is also uh, 20 years younger. So you lose memories of your life and your relationships and, and, and things like that. And so I just think that the big point is that science is taking us to a place that we've not been before. And maybe science always does that, uh, but the pace of this innovation is so much quicker. And when people think of the pace of change, they think, well, what, what did life, uh, now it's, it's 2014, people think, well, what was life like in 2004? And in our heads, the rate of change between 2014 and 2024 ought to be roughly the same as between 2004 and today. But in fact, that's not the case because it's, the, the innovation is a J-curve. And so it may be the equivalent of 30 years or 40 years going backward, the speed of innovation uh, going forward. So we're right on the verge of this, this series of ongoing fundamental transformations of ourselves and our uh, environment. Uh, and it's going to take a lot of creativity and a lot of ad- uh, adaptability. And, a, and we're going to have to have a lot of tough, 
deep, meaningful conversations. Of course, the overlay to that is the degree to which people fear change more than they fear almost anything else. Yeah, well, we do, but we also love change. And I think that's the thing. I mean, we fear it, um, but the history of our species is that we are restless, sometimes hubristic, and that's what's, that's what's driven us. And we have all these strange attributes, anxiety and other things. You wonder why, why did evolution um, reward anxiety? I mean, isn't, isn't it just useful? But that's part of being human is that, yes, we're afraid of change, but we also are afraid of staying where, uh, where we are. And, and that's the history of our species, and it will be the history of our species, that we charge forward, and when we have these capabilities, we use them. And sometimes we manage them better, and sometimes we manage them worse, um, but we use them, and, and collectively we charge forward. Jamie Batzell, his book is Genesis Code, a thriller of the near future. Jamie, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. My great pleasure. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 